You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom, recorded live at our recent event on raising capital. This episode is a panel discussion featuring Intercom CEO Owen McCabe and the investors who led our Series A and B rounds, Mamoon Hamid, Social Capital, and Ethan Kurtzweil, Besimir Partners. Facilitating the conversation is Kathleen Estrike, Intercom Chief of Staff. Well, thanks. Um, it's great to be here in Dublin. Super excited. Uh, so we've got quite a panel lined up with these guys. Hopefully we'll give them a hard time and get some good answers. Uh, so just to set the context, uh, I have a bunch of questions and then we have a handful of questions that some folks submitted uh, earlier this week. So we'll go through some of those uh, kind of sprinkled in. So without further ado, let's welcome the panel back to the stage. So really interesting to hear earlier about the different stages, the different types of firms, uh, kind of your investment philosophies, which is great. Uh, but we've got a lot of CEOs and entrepreneurs in the crowd, and I think they have one very important question to ask the three of you, which is, how the fuck do they get money from you? Fair question. <laughs> Fair question. Well, <laughs> Mamoon? <laughs> First time I've ever seen a VC speechless. Yeah. <laughs> First off, Owen says the best. You have to find a way to get to us, or uh, find a trusted source that will vouch for you to f- introduce us. So you know, a lot of what we do is happens through uh, our our networks, the people that we know, and many times you also uh, get approached by entrepreneurs with cold email and again every once in a while you decide to respond and because you know generally I can't think of a time when we've invested in a company that just come off over the transom. Uh, I've so done it once. You've done it once? Just, just a few months out? ago. Good. Good? Okay. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll, Australian we'll, guy. So, yeah, we'll ask yeah. in a year again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, find a way and I think Owen should opine on this because I think you, you have a good way of thinking about how do you um, using your networks to get to uh, people is the first step in assessing whether you're worthy. So I think that's like the first step. So I'll let the other guys throw a pine here. Honestly, if I could turn the question around, because I think a lot of people think, okay, the, the goal is get funded. And that may be a goal, and that may be an enabler of great things, like at Intercom and many companies that we've been fortunate enough to be involved with. But the goal should be to solve a big problem or solve a problem and build a good product to do that. And so if we're doing our jobs right, it's absolutely right that there are strategies to get to us and to be taken uh, you know, more seriously than other approaches you might, you might take. But don't forget job one, which is build a great product. And hopefully, we take, hopefully it's so great that we realize that. Like in the case of Intercom, we come chase Owen down or you down. Um, that would be my, my best advice is don't think of funding as a be-all, end-all. Think of it as a means to an end. So, Owen, I'm going to turn this question back to you. Sometimes, uh, if you're lucky enough as an entrepreneur, you get the pick of the litter of investors. So, what is your criteria for picking investors? Um, so, like uh, Ethan mentioned, um, this is either the sign of, a, of someone who's bad at fundraising or maybe it's a really, really smart strategy has happened to work out so far. But, um, you know, um, 
I'm a big believer in letting people come to you. I mean, this is just not a tactic. It is actually focusing on building a fucking great company. And that is applicable at every single stage. It is true to say that I had to hustle to raise 500K, a million dollars at the start. Um, but we had not yet built a great company and a great product. And when you do those things, money will come to you. And in those instances, the people who come to you, hot and heavy, like our esteemed guests uh, did with us, um, that's a great filter for folks who like get what you're doing and are probably excited to do a deal with you. I'm not saying it's a walk in a park, there's negotiation that needs to happen, but uh, it's a good filter for folks who get what you're doing and they're excited to work with you. And that's always been my strategy or my default way of working, which is to let people come to us. So when you think about, just to kind of dig into that a little bit, when you think about investors, so they're coming to you, but are you looking for certain value add things that they can bring to you or the company to kind of help it grow? I really think that this is a like, self-selecting mechanism also. Like if you think about it, you know, if you rely on the build it and they will come strategy, the people who will come to you are the folks who are probably the right folks for you, you know? When Mamoon invested, we were making like 13K MRR, like 13K a month. And that's, that's so low, it's literally not even funny. Um, uh, he didn't laugh. Uh, yeah. so These guys sold more in t-shirts tonight. What's that? You guys sold more in t-shirts tonight, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's my answer. I mean, like, the, you know, the folks, you know, the, this is like a real hippie, stupid answer, but the folks who are best for you at any particular time are the folks who are probably going to seek you out and get you. I mean, you obviously want to, when people come to you, you obviously want to, like, test that they actually get your vision and your plan and they understand the business. And it's, there is, like, nothing more thrilling. You know, I literally will feel it tingle down my spine when someone comes to you who will verbalize or reiterate or tell you your vision. They get it perhaps better than you do it in some point, and that's magical. Yeah. Um, all right, so our next question is going to come from the audience. So Claire McHugh. I'm Claire. I'm the CEO of Axonista, and we're, um, we're making video interactive on touchscreen devices. Um, firstly, I just want to thank Intercom um, and all the investors for putting on this um, event. It's really excellent and informative, so thank you, everybody. Um, so my question is twofold. <laughs> Um, what I'd like to know is how much time do you spend with your companies after investing um, versus chasing new companies? And what are the types of things that you like to work on with those companies? And that's to anybody that wants to answer that question. I can, I can start. Uh, so I would say it's a third, a third, a third, a, a third uh, looking at new companies, a third spending time with existing companies like Intercom, and a third more general building your firm, thinking about the future, thinking about where you want to invest. So that would be the rough breakdown of how I sort of run my day-to-day -day or week-to-week. -week. It could be a particular week where you're spending the whole week in board meetings. So that's pretty much the whole week spent on the one-third. Uh, but if you look at across a quarter, it's probably a third, a third, a third. Yeah, for me, I think the 50-50 is about right. It's, pro it's probably a little more time with the existing portfolio, you know, given just the number of companies I'm involved with and, and what I like to spend my time. But I, I try to learn from them so that I can bring that to, to looking for new things, too. 
And um, you know, the way the way I like to provide support, you know, as Owen at the intro, you know, mentioned, we're a big firm. We have infrastructure. We have resources for things that are sort of down the middle of the fairway types requests. We're recruiting. We've got a recruiting question. We've got a business development. I, you know, I want to make sure we have the right people to help Owen. It's everything else that I want to, you know, be there for the companies and be available, you know, whatever time it is. So it may be someone's, you know, needs needs to be motivated or thinking, you know, thinking about leaving or we're trying to recruit somebody great to the business and to go talk to them. It may be doing uh, talks in Dublin for your companies where there's a you know, session set up to talk about fundraising or a anything that's, that's helpful to the cause that um, our founders say, you know, this is, this is a perspective you can bring. We want to be there. So when you guys are spending time with these, these companies and these founders, um, what are the, the lessons that you keep repeating to these CEOs? So what do VCs know that CEOs might not know? I mean, I think just the pattern recognition data, you know, we have, you know, 20 SaaS companies in our portfolio. We can metric any company that walks into Intercom, Slack, Box, you know, at the similar stage. So th that's an unfair advantage. Obviously, it's all internal to our, our, our firm, uh, but we have, that's the data that all startups don't have at the, you know, we know at month 12 what 10 different SaaS businesses looked like and uh, most founders don't have access to that data. So, um, and you know, many times we also share it, you know, we've shared it with Owen in the past. Here's look at all your cohort companies and how you look in comparison to all these companies with the names taken out, obviously, uh, just to give you a sense of how you're doing uh, in comparison to all the other SaaS companies in our portfolio. It's, it's a very unusual role um, as, a, as a VC, as an investor, in that there are times when we want to uh, you know, shake a founder and say, don't you see? This is not the way it was done before. But we have to hold back, first, of, first and foremost, because we might be wrong. And maybe it's that founder that's going to do things a totally different way that's going to break some new paradigm open that, that you know, you know, we're, we're not necessarily going to predict. But also, our job is to enable the founders to do their best work, to support them, to um, help make them as successful as they can possibly be. And so there are times when we want to give advice and it's ignored and it, sh and it should be followed and vice versa, there's times when our advice is taken and it should be ignored. And so there is a real, um, I want to say a skill or, or kind of a, a line that we try, to, we try to walk around. How do we provide data and information and advice but not be too prescriptive about it because we want our founders to feel, you know, the, the be able to surprise us and do magical things. So you should ask Owen if we've achieved that, but that is the line we try to, we try to walk. So kind of turning the tables on you, Owen, uh, Intercom's been going for four years now. Uh, what are some of the biggest mistakes you've made? Wow. Um, and thanks for the question, I guess. Thank you very much. Um, um, biggest mistakes. Um, you know, one of the things that um, uh, I find we end up we end up asking ourselves, it's like, did we start sales early enough? You know, product-oriented founders building product-first companies, uh, all problems they want to fix are product. And they have a build it and they will come mentality. Um, they don't fundamentally understand distribution and the idea that you might need to pay people to sell your product. Um, that's super foreign to product people, very foreign. 
And, uh, you know, in our instance, it took our, our now VP sales, Russ Thaw, who's in the audience somewhere, um, to come to me and say, I love Intercom, you need sales. And I was like, thank you, I'm not sure about that. And we met for months and months and months, and he eventually convinced me to let him come in and do something useful. And I said, that's fine, but just don't talk to anyone else. <laughs> and uh, two or three months in, he very quickly was producing more than a lot of value. And uh, we really saw the benefit of having real humans there to talk to our customers, to help them understand and buy the product. It was amazing. And so maybe that's one of my biggest mistakes, which was to not bring in sales early enough. You know, I'm just trying to be hard on us. I could come up with all sorts of excuses why it was the perfect time to bring in sales. But um, you know, I think that's a mistake that product people will make and that I as a product person made, I think. Do you think that sales is the only thing that maybe you brought in a little bit later? Or is that one oh, that I should have got a chief of staff earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, oh, self-serving, yes. Yeah, maybe I can def defend you a little yeah. bit because I would say that uh, it's, I would have been my job as someone on the board to say, hey, we need sales. My pattern suggests that we should have sales now. Uh, but I would defend you that, saying that uh, I think bringing in a sales culture too early on into a product-centric company may not have been the right thing. It would have uh, maybe informed more than necessary our early product decisions. And uh, again, you know, just believing that Intercom is a special company and there's a, a long future ahead to impact that so early on in a, uh, in a way that would have impacted the integrity and the, the vision of the product, I think it could have jeopardized that. So um, I would say I fully knowing we should have brought in sales uh, day one. Didn't want us to bring in sales because, and that's why I wouldn't have su been suggested to you. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, in hindsight, one, I think you could say, okay, well, we should have brought in more sales. We'd be bigger today. But I think we don't know what the side effects could have been if we would have brought in. Russ, you're great, but you, you <laughs> made it. Came convinced. at just the right time. Yeah, I think it's the right time. Yeah, nice. Cool. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and go to another question from the audience. So we've got Kevin Holler in the audience. Uh, hi, my name is Kevin. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Shake. And uh, my question is more about uh, geographies and locations. So a lot of startups here, Ireland, probably all over Europe, are thinking about Silicon Valley, San Francisco, how they're going to get in there. So m my question is, what do you look for in companies that are thinking about going over there? What, what stage they should be at? Um, and just basically things you're looking out for. I think Mamoon should say something yeah, first. Yeah, I'll just say something because I think uh, Intercom was at a perfect stage when we first took a look. And it was a small team. I think you guys were at 10 to 12 or so. And the first three or four in San Francisco, uh, there was a product, there was a vision, there's a core founding team that could build and had shipped product and there was early signs of product market fit, and something that I mentioned earlier in my talk with Owen. So those are things I think that are necessary and maybe not even sufficient, uh, but that's sort of the right time. And um, I think it also suggests that to get all those things done, all those three or four things I mentioned, you probably need to raise some capital here locally uh, on the order of half a million to a million dollars, maybe even less. Which, so the right time to, that may be the right time. So what I would say is also 
to raise your first round of capital from Silicon Valley is probably not the right like, first step. So I think it's sort of the second step. Um, just, because, just because it's going to be straight up hard. Really you've hard. You've got no network, yeah. and you don't really know how the game works there. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you don't it's have not someone like vouching wrong, for you. It's just you're going to spend a ton of time. Yeah, it's gonna yeah be you're just going to go from you know, conference room to conference room, trying to pitch someone, convince someone, uh, have no one to vouch for you. Uh, I think it's just straight up almost impossible. Uh, so there's an intermediate step, which is to bootstrap or raise a little bit of capital, get going, get your bearings, accelerator, Y Combinator type thing, or you know, have folks that you've sort of built relationships with out there because you now have a product and actual users who are using it in the valley who are now suggesting you talk to their investors, which I'm sure happens to own all the time as young founders from Europe come to you and ask you for recommendations on who to talk to because, you know, and now you can sort of vouch for them because they actually have product. So, you know, it's also the person who is referring rep reputation on the line when they refer you over. So. It's step two, I would say, not step one. But it's not impossible. <laughs> well, yeah, we did it, so. Uh, hey. You're good. It's great, yeah. You <laughs> <laughs> dropped the mic. I think he did, yeah. What's that? I think, he, I think he managed to raise over there, is what you just said. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Cool. Good for you, man. But it's, re I mean, I can vouch to the idea that it's really damn hard, and I spent a good four and a half painful months getting nowhere. And I raised the bulk of the first 500K from like some Irish angels and folks, and then was super lucky with the next 500K. But really, you couldn't say that that first million was like raising the valley. I banged my head against the wall. Every wall in every VC firm in, in, uh, in the valley, like it's hard. Um, and it's just different when you've got your network there and you've got some momentum. And you're not so green to the game such that you kind of like even know how it works and what to say, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't until later. So I do agree with you. Yeah, so that kind of dovetails into the geography topic. Let's kind of dig into that a little bit. So you have Intercom, which is, you know, Irish founders raise money in Silicon Valley, big R&D, only R&D office in Dublin, uh, business functions out of San Francisco. The war for talent in Silicon Valley, we all know, is, is heating up and has been heating up over the last couple of years. Is this a new trend that you think is going to continue, uh, where you know, companies are going to have different offices all around the world? Or you know, how, do you, how do you see that playing out over the next couple of years? I, I personally hope so, because I think San Francisco will explode if it continues at <laughs> the, the pace that it's been going. Um, I, I, you know, the way, I, the way I, I think about that question is, that, is you know, it sort of comes down to work with what you've got and work with where you've got an advantage, you've got a competitive advantage, something that allows you to move faster, exploit that. And there's no question in my mind that Intercom having the, the presence that we have here is really meaningful for the, for the you know, ability of this company to stay ahead, to innovate, and the velocity at which um, we can produce product. Um, and so I think I, you know, special entrepreneurs where they have uh, pockets of talent like that. We have a company, Pipedrive, that has all of its R&D in Talon, Estonia. And they're one of the, you know, the leading uh, technical teams there in Talon. Where you can do that and create a culture where if there's a remote thing, it works, or you maintain the presence of the company not in Silicon Valley, that's great. There's no magic to Silicon Valley. There certainly are some you know, experienced um, technical folks and business leaders that have been through this 
kind of cycle of building companies like, like Intercom before, but you can do that in every geography. We have a company in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. There's no startups there, There's, except this particular healthcare startup. And, um, you know, they've, they've taken on advice from venture capitalists like us where we can help them. But I, I think... There's, Silicon Valley has no monopoly on innovation or on you know, good startups by any stretch. But a lot of towns and cities have tried to replicate Silicon Valley. Why do you think they've struggled? You've got New York, you've got you know, a bunch of different places that have tried to kind of take the magic of Silicon Valley and bring it elsewhere, um, but haven't quite gotten to that caliber. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a different question as it relates to a place. Can they get quite as many... Uh, you know, quite as, as much a sort of local nexus of it as exists in the Bay Area. Um, and I think the reasons are that, you know, very rooted in the DNA of, of Silicon Valley going back to, you know, Fairchild and the semi days was this culture of risk taking and entrepreneurship and, you know, the enabling structures such that you could build good technical talent around there. And there's just many decades of that built up and so you will continue to see the disruptive companies, you know, the, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles and, and companies like that continue to exist in Silicon Valley. But I think, I don't think that's, uh, you know, an inevitable trend that no other place could have great talent and great startups exist. And I think as, you know, the world becomes smaller and good tools like Intercom and others allow people to share knowledge more quickly, you will see other places have little pockets of talent. I, I think it's um, extremely difficult to recreate the virtuous cycle that Silicon Valley is in. Uh, so that's the obvious. Uh, but that doesn't take away from the fact that you can build great products outside of Silicon Valley. And I would say half of our companies have a significant presence outside of Silicon Valley where they're actually building real product and have significant um, resources deployed, uh, whether it's in Poland or in, you know, Minneapolis, or it's in um, Toronto, or um, in Bangalore, or in Mexico. I mean, you, I, I can just go through my head, and uh, there's probably half of our companies which are, have a primary presence in Silicon Valley, but have a secondary presence, or even a semi-primary presence elsewhere. So, uh, because it goes back to your original question, which is the war on talent is, it's, it's excruciatingly painful in Silicon Valley, um, because what happens is, you know, you've got a limited geographical space and um, the cost of living and other things that happen when you have this, uh, this mass migration of people looking for jobs and, and because they're coveted, they go from one job to the next job and that creates problems in, in, in terms of churn and attrition at companies and that's just not a good thing overall for the ecosystem uh, over time. So uh, I, I certainly believe and I hope, like, most of our companies have an element that's non-Silicon Valley based because it, it's, it's a true competitive advantage for Intercom. And uh, like Ethan said, I don't think where we, we, we'd be where we are if it wasn't for our Dublin team. So there's something to being a bigger fish, in a, to being a big fish in a smaller pond sometimes. I mean, here in Intercom, I think you have that. Uh, one of our other portfolio companies that's done very, very well is this company Shopify. They're in Ottawa, Ottawa, Canada, and they have engineering centers all throughout Canada and Toronto and in Vancouver and all over. And they're able to build really awesome culture where people love the company and stay there for a long time and really take from these very strong sources of 
good engineering talent and other forms of talent by building that reputation. So that can be good. Yeah, I think it's definitely a key differentiator between, uh, for Intercom at least, to have the, the R&D office here in Dublin. But there are some trade-offs from like a practical operational standpoint. So Owen, do you want to speak to some of the trade-offs that, that we've had to incur for, sure. for having the office sure. here? So, um, you know, the, the time zone difference is clear. Um, eight hours is rough. And as I get started uh, at work in the morning and start checking my mail, people in Dublin start to finish up and leave work. And uh, that's not useful. And uh, it's just really, really difficult to stay in sync in that respect. Um, we try and counter that by not dividing teams across offices. So we have whole teams, the whole product team, the whole engineering team, for example, is all in Dublin. You know, the whole finance or growth or marketing team is all in SF, uh, for the most part. Uh, uh, and that really cuts down on the amount of communication. So maybe it's just the poor CEO who has to talk to everyone that really suffers uh, that kind of pain. But that's a real trade-off. The other trade-off, of course, is um, you know, keeping people together as a, an organization that is supposed to be one and have this like singular uh, mission and be this uh, whole wholesome culture. Uh, how do you do? How do you do that when you've got large groups of people who never see each other, and when you never see people, you forget they exist. You forget they exist, and you forget all of the types of projects and hard work and hustle and events and whatnot when you just don't see it, um, and that's really really difficult. Uh, that's another trade-off. With all of these trade-offs, you um, need to try to make them your strengths. You try to find the silver lining in each of those things. So, for example, on the um, you know on the culture piece, we celebrate that we are two cities, two countries, from two nations. You know, um, it's amazing to see like Americans in San Francisco literally talk about going for scoops on Friday. That's a real, that's a real thing. That's pints, drinks, scoop. And like, there's like, you know, actual people born and bred in the United States till they die, talking about let's go for some scoops, anyone for some scoops. It's kind of amazing. And they like, are excited about that Irish thing. In, in Dublin, people are excited, I think, to work with a valley company. All our, uh, all our offices are marked with, with signs, all our meeting rooms are marked with signs in Dublin with San Francisco neighborhoods, Selma, Castro, etc. Um, so that's cool too. So there's trade-offs, um, um, but you need to look at the silver lining behind them. Um, and I think you need to just ask yourself, is that trade-off worth it? And I think over time it's been clear that it has become very much worth it to Mimoon and Ethan's point that it is like a key, like, like secret weapon of ours that we like have these great individuals um, outside of the echo chamber that is the valley sometimes. You want to add something? No. Okay, sorry. But it's a pretty unique model in that you, Des, Kieran, um, and David are all from Ireland. Yep. And then you move to the States. And then you have, obviously, very close ties back. Three of them work in this office. So is this a repeatable model for, for teams and companies that maybe don't have that to fall back on? I mean, uh, 
if the model is, um, you know, uh, have your product or R&D center somewhere else outside the valley, um, well, yeah, there's a bunch of other people doing that. And uh, is that repeatable? Yes, it's repeatable. I think that the really, really important thing is with, with all of these things, when you would listen to advice and tips and tricks to like understand the, the true breadth of the picture or, you know, lift back the curtain and see like, what, what, how does this really work? Like the model is not, um, have two offices, do all your product in Dublin, it'll be okay. The model is a whole range of bullshit and trade-offs and challenges that once you bet on, you can never go back. What are we gonna do? Be like, well, let's go to San Francisco actually. No, we're done. We're here to stay, we're done. And uh, so to that end, if you wanna like, um, if you would wanna look at that model and try to replicate it, like I said, go in with eyes wide open, try to understand all of the trade-offs, the pros and the cons, before you make that decision. So we're gonna to go to another audience question. Uh, Dan, or Don Moynihan. Hey guys, uh, Don Moynihan, uh, G Capital Treasury. First of all, uh, thanks a lot for coming out and sharing your thoughts, great show. Um, my question is about valuation. So notwithstanding the recent pop in China, we've been in a fairly benign macro environment. You know, low rates, ample liquidity, Given that environment, you know, can I get your comments on where you see valuations are and whether you think they're reasonable or stretched and what your thoughts are on that? Yeah, valuations are high, there's no question. I mean, the, word you, the word you used was stretched. I would use the word, you know, I'd use different words, but I think, I think you got the concept. Um, and I do think it's perhaps bred a little bit of a culture of kind of chasing the unicorn or other multi-headed beast, you know, that may or may not really exist in the wild. Um, the, the, the sort of repercussions of that are, are uh, entirely predictable, and that's that people tend to chase these, um, in some cases, false signals of what success is and what succeeding is, and, and you know, chase the next funding round or the next $100 million funding round or billion-dollar valuation, when a lot of times those things are tend to be and can be very illusory. And so I think everything Matt said is absolutely right. Like, you know, the, the, the right way to succeed is to build the best product and company you can and control your own destiny, so to speak, and not, and not rely on all of this macro stuff uh, turning out favorably to win. Now, it's much easier said than done, but the, if you look over time, and you, you can look in any year, through any environment, through any macro climate, great companies have been started. You know, Facebook was started in 2004, I think. Um, Skype was started in 2001, one of the worst years for, for uh, funding. It doesn't, good companies will find a way, great entrepreneurs will find a way. Um, and it, you know, reading the tea leaves, so to speak, on what you know, type of, what the macro environment and what you know, the right steps to become a unicorn is not, usually are not often the right path to success. So Owen, when you think about raising money based on this, so a lot of companies are getting crazy valuations. Um, they're a little bit ahead of kind of where their actual numbers may or may not justify that. When you think about raising money, how do you think about valuation in the context of that? Um, I mean, you know, 
Okay, a couple things. So, uh, the, you know, the, the, the question of valuation is not unrelated to the question of like round size and, you know, uh, you know, raising at a higher valuation will often mean raising more money. Um, uh, more money means more optionality. Um, you can certainly do more things, but you can also do the same amount of things and have spare money. Um, at least that's the kind of little lie that founders and CEOs tell themselves. The people to my left would have a slightly different view. Um, that view is that, and I basically would agree with them, that it's probably effectively impossible to give a human or a CEO a 50 to $100 million more than they need and not have them spend faster. Um, people spend money that they have. It's not different for companies than it is for individuals. It's just a human thing. And when you spend faster, you have a higher momentum. It's a train that's far more difficult to slow down. And that gets especially worrying when you spend on things that are not accretive to the value of the company in the future, such that you might have actually flushed a lot of money down the toilet and not actually created value, such that later on it might be really, really difficult to raise at that similar valuation or or beyond. That's what they want me to say. Um, but that is basically true. That is, that, is, that, is, that is the case. But one thing I would add is that um, um, you know, valuation is not the be all and the end all. It, it is just not, 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 not. It's just not. However, 80% of that message comes from investors. Uh, if, if people tell you, like, you know, choose the right investor, choose someone who can like, really add value to your company, that's uh, a negotiation tactic for the most part. You know, I believe it, I believe it, I believe in working with great people, but the primary commentary on this whole market comes from VCs and there is a, uh, there's a vested interest there. Basically, my stance on it is raise as much money as possible and somehow be totally inhuman and don't spend it. So higher valuation is always better in your mind? <laughs> uh, I mean, higher valuation means more money and then if you can somehow be super crazy unique and not spend it and put it away for a yeah, rainy day, then that's a big thing. It's not always better. It, no. You lose optionality as well. So if a company raises $50 million at 500 post for no product, yeah, you know, maybe they do something and two years later they're still not worth $500 million. Um, maybe at that point, traditionally, if they'd raised $5 million at 50 post, they would have gotten acquired by Google for $150 million. But they, that doesn't, that's not an option because you know, they're sitting at a really high valuation. So it's not always a good thing. I th yeah, I think that's a problem though if they go ahead and spend that 50 million, you know what I mean? So like if they raise 50 million but then they only spent as if they had raised two, three, four million and they had all that money in the bank, there's things that can be figured out, you know? The money is probably gonna at least be worth uh, to the investor, to the pot potential acquirer what the money was worth to the investors. Um, and it depends also on the terms that you raise that money on. So speaking um, of that, like, let's hear from all of you of what's one of the bets that you made that made you very uncomfortable? Like evaluation where you were like, I don't know if I should do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. That ended up paying Can out. Can I ask Owen a question first? Sure. Before, sorry, I know I'm not the <laughs> moderator, but I got to ask this. Because my answer would have been the same as Mamoon's. Not always better, but the, the difference there that you came back with is the not spending it part, right? And before you said, 
it's hard not to spend money that you have. Right. So the, the, the advice right, exactly. everyone needes, and right. I, so I'm I like, is, how that. do you do that? Right, exactly. Right, right. exactly. That's how, fair. Yeah. And I think the, the, the No, truth, no, I'm, I'm asking. Like, no, how, no, you're how, right. Yeah. Okay, and, and yeah. okay. I will give an answer. <laughs> yeah. the, the, the real, the problem, the crux of this whole problem is that the people raising uh, this money, they've never raised money before, they've never run companies before. Yeah. People have run companies before and made money, they don't make companies again. You know, it's too damn hard. It's not that fun. Uh, it's fun. Yeah. Um, some days. Some but days. Uh, so the people who raise all this money, they've never run companies before. They've never raised money before. So they do fucking spend it. And that's the problem. So it, this is a nuanced thing. You got to just understand the situation. Anyway, how do you not spend it? Yeah. This is a trick question. Is the no, thing. no. Okay. I'm not putting you on the spot because um, I, I think this is, I think you're yeah, right. Yeah, 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 you're yeah. right in a, I, like, you know, in I an think, idealistic sense, yeah, 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 but yeah, how yeah. do you make how it do you happen? Not, I mean, you know, the truth is uh, every single dollar you spend, like I said, should be accretive to the value of the company. Now, you never fully know that, but you should be thinking carefully about what is the next thing that we need to do. And when we spend every dollar, do we believe it is creating value? And, 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 and that question needs to be looked at in the lens of like where we spend the money. If we're spending on product, you know, you know, we as product people do the market want this, you know, can we sell more of this product? Is it going to create a larger market for us, et cetera? If you're spending it on marketing, you know, uh, uh, do the unique, unique economics make sense such that the dollar I spend here will work out as two or three or four dollars later? If you're spending it on salespeople, the same, et cetera, you know? Um, yeah, so, 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 and, and that's how you don't spend too much. Now, of course, people do that and they don't raise a, a lot of money and it turns out they just made bad decisions about what they spent money on, but that's just the venture in the technology game. Cool, thanks for humoring me. Yeah. I've, like, I've been proud that we don't do the valley bullshit stuff. We just don't, you won't catch us spending stupid money um, for the most part, but we're humans too. Um, Science but, no, thank you for well. saying that, but I, I, I do. I look at other companies and they do a bunch of stupid bullshit and uh, yeah, thank you. What's your pet peeve on that? Foosball tables. <laughs> too noisy. Too noisy, yeah. All right, uh, so this has been super interesting uh, panel. So we've got one final question for everyone. Um, so the market conditions, we all kind of talked about, you know, valuations are high, lots of money coming in. There may or may not be a market correction in sometime in the future, but I think we're all pretty bullish on technology and its future. So I would love to hear from everyone, what are you most optimistic about in the next five to 10 years? I think I mentioned earlier uh, in, in our conversation that um, technology is sort of going through all parts of our way of living today and disrupting one industry after the other. So there's so much to be excited about just in terms of how much value will be created. It'll be trillions of dollars. And I mean, like, literally it'll be trillions of dollars. And um, I just feel like we're still so early. Like, yes, it's been 20 years of the internet. And it'll be, you know, 20 years of mobile and then 20 years of something else. Uh, but it's going to rip through all parts of society from healthcare and transportation to education and financial services. And, you know, 30 years from now, I think we'll be looking at companies that are all sort of tech-enabled. They'll all be technology companies. So um, it's a very high-level answer, but, you know, it's incumbent on us now to figure out, like, where particularly uh, do we want to invest our time, including in, you know, in companies like Intercom, where, you know, they're helping web-based, mobile-based businesses interact with their customers more personally. 
Well, you know, that's a, a pretty basic concept that can be a very large company in business that doesn't necessarily have to do with healthcare and education and the systems of society, but it has something to do with, you know, how do you treat your, your customers with dignity and respect that they're used to in, a, in an offline world? Well, I'll give you two answers, and then maybe I'll expound on one. I think two, two things that are becoming information technologies that are, beget, that are getting tech-enabled, um, so to speak. One is healthcare. Um, so using technology to improve our bodies and our health is something that is becoming very real. People think of this as very far out, but there's people that have you know, chips in their brains now. If you're a Parkinson's patient or, or a friend of mine who's legally deaf has a cochlear implant, that's a computer in his, in his head. Um, and so the possibilities for that are, are coming sooner than I think a lot of people realize. And the other one is, um, it's a communication technology of itself, itself but it's you know, some form of virtual reality, some form of immersive experience where we can share in a social way online. Uh, there's been lots of early attempts of this. I think people have been predicting this for a while and, and probably be disappointed at the pace of innovation with VR, but it is coming. The idea of being able to pop on some glasses or a headset and be in Dublin when you're sitting in San Francisco is probably very appealing to Owen uh, in terms of you know, working with remote teams. And ditto for loved ones uh, who are in the military fighting overseas or you know, called up for various situations or can't be with their family or friends. Or, you know, I, I could go on for a long time about the uses of this tech, but it is coming and I think it will fundamentally change how uh, the human species interacts. My, uh, you know, my particular lens is, uh, you know, that of a, like a, a product person and perhaps like a software person. And um, for me, and it sounds negative, but, but um, the, you know, 99% of software is shit. Like really shit. And most people in the world don't have the benefit of good software. Most verticals, like all sorts of stuff like farming and different types of industries that no one is making software for them. You know, right now we're technologists making software for technologists. Hi, that's me. Uh, that's what we need to come do, and it's not very noble in that sense. There's just a lot more people in the world need like software, for 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 example. Um, but even if you look at the software that exists today, it's just sh it's shitty. It's really shit. Um, I mean, it just is. You know, like you know, try and think of like a software product where you that you know, there's very few software products that I think great software people and product people like look up to. And I mean, it's today hard to build software and we're held back in different ways, whether it's like talent or some of the technologies we have or the platforms, even platforms like iOS is still like relatively hard to develop for. But it's getting easier all the time. I think technology now being so healthy and healthy in a real way, it's not a rational exuberance that we saw in the late 90s, but it's like, you know, delivering real value to the world. Um, uh, now that that's becoming clear, more and more people will be studying engineering and computer engineering and computer science. So there will just be more people in the world using better platforms and technologies. It'll be easier to create this software. We're learning about software and we're learning about the internet. The internet's still a baby, so we're learning how to make better products. So what I'm excited about, and it's, it's kind of simple, but what I'm excited about is like opportunities to make better software for more people. Their opportunities abound. The whole world needs better software. Um, that's, that's just a gaping opportunity, incredible. Yeah, it's a great opportunity yeah. for everyone here. So. Yeah. <laughs>
So thanks everyone for, for coming. Um, I'd love to say thank you to the panelists and for being here. And uh, so yeah, let's give them a hand. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io.